0: So uh, here's a picture of a chap called Martian of Sinope. Not to be confused with this Martian, Marvin the Martian, the Warner Bros. Uh, cartoon character. Uh, that's the last joke you're going to have or funny in this whole sermon because we've got a lot to get through. Uh, and why have I got Martian up there? Well, this guy was born in around 85 AD and he was likely the first person to have a go at proposing what books and letters should make up the New Testament. Unfortunately, his criteria for choosing was more or less whatever fitted in with his own beliefs. So his New Testament had just 11 books in it. Uh, they were all, or well, mostly uh, Paul's letters, uh, and they were mostly edited, so there was 10 of those, and then there was a sawn-off version of Luke's gospel. It was basically a pick and mix of what should be, as we have it, the New Testament. Now imagine that, imagine you had that task, what would the New Testament look like for you? Which bits would get left out if you were putting the Bible together? Well quite possibly the two passages we have today might get the chop, I reckon two passages that sound out of touch with our culture and society today. So we're looking at the first half of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians and the last section of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. And as I've prepared this, thought it through, I do sympathise a bit with Martian when we come to Scripture passages like these with a, a sort of a, a lack of clarity, as it seems to us, about them. Or, or we just don't seem to like what they say or be saying. Better not to touch them. Maybe they're too controversial. But on behalf of the leadership of this church and the convictions that we hold here, those are actually very good reasons why we're actually going to deal with these passages. They are there in God's Word written to the church in Corinth. And the Holy Spirit, as he inspired the Apostle Paul, thought they were important enough to set before that new church in Corinth. And while there may be some complexities and some things that don't readily translate from around 50 AD to AD 2023 Kingston, the big things are clear. They really are. And the biggest thing... And this is our conviction, isn't it, is that God speaks through his word to his people. And so this is no less God's word than Genesis chapter 1, or John chapter 3, or Psalm 46, or whichever other passage we choose uh, to focus on. And look, whenever we encounter scriptures like this that have us scratching our heads at least a little bit, uh, we can apply some principles. And I want to take you on that journey a little bit because it's going to help us. And the first principle is this. Scripture interprets scripture. And what is clear in scripture helps us to understand what is less clear in scripture. We have confidence that what is less clear cannot actually contradict those things that are clear so if nothing else we can know what can't be being said we'll see that a little bit later on the second principle is this what's the bigger picture what's the context of this passage or these passages Well, we've been on this journey through 1 Corinthians. Let's have a little bit of a recap of some of the themes, the big themes of this letter. We know that Paul is addressing many and varied issues in this Corinthian church as opportunities, though, to apply the gospel, the simple but ever so profound message of Christ crucified, and to apply it powerfully. Remember what he said? I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except this. Christ crucified and one of the biggest issues in Corinth is this freedom that they seemed to lay hold of and want to express more specifically it's a it's a freedom in Christ wrongly understood or wrongly expressed so Paul quotes the Corinthians a few times in the letter when he says I have the right to do anything you say And he does that four times in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12 and chapter 10 verse 23. And the Corinthians were like, you know, we're free in Christ. We have the right to do what we want. And they were. We've seen, haven't we, they're pretty wild at times. Chaotic, disordered, divided. Struggling with each other. Taking each other to court. All sorts of stuff going on but perhaps you've noticed as well as we've been journeying through this letter every time paul is dealing with these various wild expressions of freedom or even actually when he talks about his own approach to his rights and freedom in chapter 9 i have the right to x y and z he goes through in that chapter he constrains that freedom for a greater good They're merely his own good. It's not about him. It's for God's good. It's, It's for the church. It's for the body. It's for the gospel. It's to save some. It's to save any. It's for love. It's for edification of everyone. And so this right to do everything, or in an older translation, everything is permissible, It sounds, doesn't it, like absolute freedom. Do what you want. But he goes on in one of the qualifications to that statement. Everything is permissible. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. So this expressed desire for absolute freedom, according to Paul, as he thinks about these Corinthians, can be its own kind of slavery. It can master you. How? Well, I can't say no to myself. That's how. I'm mastered by it. I will not deny myself my rights. I cannot rather be wronged. I do want the focus to be on me and my spectacular gift. Such thinking, selfish thinking, harms and divides and tears down and breeds competition and creates anxiety and strife and the exact opposite of love. Paul's point is this really, you know, when you have actual freedom, and it's not as simple as yes to anything, there's still yes to everything. It's when you can say no, isn't it? That's when you know you're free. It's true in addictions. When you can't say no, you know you're addicted. You know you're mastered. When you can say no, that's liberation, isn't it? That's freedom. They were addicted to their own personal freedom and one's own rights. In Corinth. And for Paul, the basis to say no, to be able to say no to his own possible rights and any unqualified expression of his Christian freedom is one thing. It's Christ Jesus, the Lord. Christ Jesus crucified. And in his being crucified, what is happening there? Is it not the laying aside of his rights as God himself? And for what? For Paul, for the sake of all of us, for the gospel and the genuine transforming love for God it produces. So submission to God's ways, willingly and joyfully. And so all of that helps us as we approach these two passages which deal with men and women's submission to God's good order in the church which comes from Christ and so a big idea this morning is this in Christ we are free to submit to God's good order and there in these two passages some things were happening that were bringing confusion uh, to the Corinthians and as we read them they sort of bring a bit of confusion to us too uh, but they were out of order First passage then, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16, so you're going to need your Bible because we're not going to look at the whole thing, so you want to see what's there, grab a Bible, page 930. And we're going to see honouring God and each other in public worship. As you look at it, there's a lot of talk about heads and coverings and hair and whether it's long or short and it's not really very clear to us what's going on, the customs, the customs, of the time differ a lot from ours it seems and the original Greek that it's written in is quite ambiguous crucially what does head mean in these verses you'll see head in there a lot it can mean your actual head your noggin it can mean could mean source as in head of a river It could mean hierarchical head, like boss, head of an organisation, that sort of thing. Now, verse 3, which we read, sets things up. And it seems that it's the second use of head that makes best sense here, along with actual head, the first use, in the verses that follow. So your actual head and head as in source. So, verse 3, I want you to realise that the head... The source of every man is Christ, and the head of the source of the woman is man, and the head, the source of Christ, is God. So it's source there as in head of a river, it's beginning. God in Christ made man. God was, uh, sorry, woman was made from man. Christ was incarnated by God. Now there's a lot of debate over that, but that seems to be, to me, to be the clearest understanding and, and why is that because it doesn't seem like Paul's concern was hierarchical primarily anyway who has authority or superiority over whom although it is possible but rather it seems to be distinguishing based on the order we find in the creation account and the behavior that Paul addresses here is a uh, confusing of that order by a confusing of the gender distinctions of the time and why had that come about well perhaps the clue is from his letter to another church in Galatia Galatians 3 verse 28 there is neither Jew nor Gentile neither slave nor free nor is there male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus and you pick that up out of context and you start working it out It could look something very much like what seems to be going on here in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul's assessment of the Corinthians' apparent freedom was simply that it produced dishonour, dishonouring your head, where head is this metaphor that means source. So, in verses 4 to 6, in verse 4, if a man's actual head is covered when he is prophesying or praying... He dishonours his head, his source, Christ. So his actual head, what's going on with that? Dishonours his head, source, Christ. Verse 5, every woman who prays, prophesies, or prays or prophesies with her actual head uncovered, which could possibly be short hair in view there, dishonours her head, her source, man. Note in passing here, please, because we'll come back to this, that uh, that, that women were praying and prophesying in public worship in the church in Corinth. We'll come back to that later. And then in verse 6, shaved, uncovered, short hair, whichever one is the actual one, for a woman's head is disgraceful. Wow. Wow what's going on there well what we can say is there was at least a culturally a disgrace attached to a man praying or prophesying with his head covered why might that be possibly because in Roman worship men brought their togas up to cover their heads when worshipping their deities and Christian worship is to be distinct from that could be that There was a disgrace attached to women praying or prophesying with their head uncovered as a woman. In Roman society to be uncovered was inviting men to size you up and even that you might have questionable morality. So it's possible then with that that it might be particularly married couples in view here. It's just not said in that way. But the point still holds for the unmarried too. In any case, Paul goes on, verse 7... A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This just keeps getting better, doesn't it? Again, our present cultural rights-focused equalitarian moment will shape the way we hear these words in a certain way, won't it? Because of our present cultural moment. To say man equals the image and glory of God and then to say woman equals the glory of man. To say woman was created for man, not the other way around. Yikes. It just doesn't sound good even as I just say it like that. These verses, along with some others included in the other passage we'll look at today, are the sort that have been, can I say, weaponized against women, to demean, to disparage, to control, to put them in their place. And women have heard these words in a disappointingly derivative, inferior kind of way. But that would be to take them out of context. So we've got some stuff to think through and listen to here. I think a much better way to take these verses founded on the truth that men and women are both image bearers of God, right? So this is scripture is clear that men and women are equally made in the image of God. Listen to this from Anthony Thistleton. Paul probably means that the existence of one brings honour and praise to the other that's good hold on to that by creating man in his own image god set his own glory in man yet man by himself is not complete remember good 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 creation but not good And so, not complete, without a companion, one who is like him, but different from him, and yet is equally the image of God. One who is uniquely, though, his own glory. Man, the man glories in her. It's written for us in Genesis, actually. That's exactly what happened. Man glories in the woman. Paul's point is that the creation narrative In the creation narrative, this did not happen the other way around. There was a sequence of events. And out of that came a distinctiveness, but the distinctiveness is a glorious one. The woman is not some trophy or plaything or instrument, but a glorious completing of humanity thing. That's what's held out to us in Scripture, clearly, clearly. And so mutual respect and love and dignity for each other and for God, most of all, is what we're to take. And what what comes next then is remarkable, I think. Verse 10, it's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Now, we might well expect that the man would have authority over the woman if the woman is made for man, right? But The authority is over the woman's, over the, her own head. She has the right to do what she wants in this. She has freedom. Do you see that? But, verse 11, Nevertheless, in the Lord... The woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. And so freedom in the Lord here means that she can say no to whatever she wants, to do what God wants. Just as freedom in the Lord means men can say no to being chauvinistic idiots and instead be worthy of the image of God that reflects back from women. I've said that strongly because it's strong. And I want us to hear it and feel it. Men and women... We all come from God. Yeah? It's right here. Honouring God's order means honouring God and being happy to honour each other and in so doing, not bring dishonour on each other or on our head. Tom Wright puts it helpfully. The underlying point seems to be that in worship, it is important for both men and women to be their truly created selves, to honour God by being what they are, and not by blurring the lines by pretending to be something else. It's good. And what about the angels? Well, you can ask me about them later because i'm not going to say anything about them but i have a few thoughts come and find me later But you see, in the Lord, we are free. We have the right to do anything as such. But not everything is beneficial. Not everything is constructive. And being free means we are not mastered by anything. We're able to say no. We're able to say no to our culture or our own preferences in order to align with or submit to God's order, which is good. Because God is good, isn't he? And so in Christ, we've got to be looking in Christ. We've got to be looking at the gospel. We are free to submit to God's good order. Okay, so that's the first point. Um, I just want to say here if you, uh, you, this may raise more questions than maybe answers that you're getting, but I do want you to ask those questions. Uh, we're not going to do that from the floor, but. Uh, what I'm going to suggest is so I'm going to pop around to the lounge afterwards and if people want to chat, um, come and find me around in the lounge afterwards. <clears throat> a little more briefly though, 1 Corinthians 14, 29-40, do everything in a fitting and orderly way. Of course here the verses that catch our focus are verses 34 and 35. Women should remain silent in the churches, they are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Wow, I'm glad I'm up here speaking on this this morning. But do you know, we've done some work already here this morning, haven't we? Because we already know what this cannot be saying. We already saw that Paul said in our last passage regarding public worship in the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, every woman who prays or prophesies. Got it? If, it's not if women pray or prophesy and they transgress when they do. It's when. When they pray or prophesy, and Paul is approving. He's only calling for appropriate honour and distinctiveness with whatever's going on with the head covering thing. So silence in chapter 14 cannot mean absolute prohibition on women speaking, less still on women speaking God's truth through prayer or what we take prophecy to be. God's truth through Uh, through the Spirit-inspired insight, is to be welcomed from women and men in the church. Right? Can we agree on that? But according to what God has ordered. And the specific setting here is important. Uh, so verse 26 uh, of chapter 14. "What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may build up. It sounds like things could be a bit chaotic in Corinth a bit like what Paul was saying in the kids talk And, and so from verse 29 onwards Paul goes about imposing some order here including something very important which is the issue of what if some of the speech that is coming out in the midst of this chaos is not right or good or true what if heresy is spoken so verse 29 two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said so how you understand these verses hinges on what you understand really about this verse. And so what are the scenarios that could be in view here? The weighing of prophecy by those with spiritual oversight. The elders, that's one. It could be husbands prophesying and their wives interrogating them publicly. It could be women not keeping to their ordered place. So the word submission is in, in our translation here um, but this just refers back to chapter 11 really women speaking with head uncovered or something like that and they're being out of order in that sense it could be wives interrogating husbands who are prophesying or it could be wives interrogating husbands who are elders and are weighing prophecy supervising the church which one are you going to pick? Well, I'm just going to tell you what I think makes best sense. But I'm, again, happy to talk about all of this afterwards. What I think fits best here and fits with Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy and Titus as well as elsewhere is that it is the elders, the spiritual leaders of the church who are in view. They are those weighing the prophecy. They're supervising the appropriateness of the truth, as it were, being expressed but their wives are interrogating them in the public meeting and undermining the role of spiritual oversight that is theirs notice that questions are absolutely okay yep but the appropriate place for them is not in that public meeting verse 35 If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, it has been common to absolutize, again, such verses as this, especially in our circles, and to imagine or somehow feel that it is disgraceful for a woman ever to speak in church. The disgrace there, again, I want us to feel this, hear this, feel it, and own it. The disgrace there is only on those who can so casually dismiss the Apostle Paul's clear approval for women to be praying and prophesying in church gatherings. Here at Kingston Christian Reformed Church, we've actually taken time to try and be as clear as possible about these things. We did some teaching on 1 Timothy uh, where Paul, looking at the Apostle Paul, our Paul, looking at the Apostle Paul, is dealing with these matters in in 1 Timothy. Our uh, careful understanding of New Testament teaching, and we did this together as a session, we went on a bit of a journey with this to, to really make this as clear as possible is that with the exception of the activity of public preaching of the church's authoritative teaching in our Sunday gatherings and the role of elder in the church, our women can do any role or activity in our church. And actually, if they don't, our church is all the poor for it. And so the question for us is, are we prepared to accept this by carefully looking at what is being presented in the New Testament? As those who could stand on all sorts of rights, as those who are free in Christ Jesus, we have the right to do anything But lots of things are not beneficial or constructive. We can put God's God's glory, we put the gospel, we put the salvation of those who do not know Jesus, we put love instead of our own desires as those who are free. We certainly put them ahead of what our culture influences us to say and we recognise with Paul that God is, Verse 33 of chapter 14 is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And verse 40, that everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. We find our freedom in the life that God calls us to. He talks about that in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God, (laughs) the grace of God, we don't deserve it. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. But what does it do in setting us free? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. In Christ, we are free to submit to God's good order. Amen. Again, please, if you want to talk more, come and find me. Very, very happy to talk further. Um, and I've not had, I can only do so much in, what is this, 30, 30 minutes. But let's, let's quieten ourselves uh, and reflect on the thing that you've heard loudest, maybe, in the presence of God. And then after maybe a, a minute or so, Brother Baz is going to come up and lead us in prayer.